This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. From PRX, the Public Radio Exchange, and Sandberg Media, LLC, I'm David Dalt with Things Not Seen. And he just talks about feeling like a kid, just, and this is someone who's been teaching at Yale and Harvard, and he's just overwhelmed with excitement, and he keeps saying with adolescent emotion. What Rodley's memoir gave me was that kind of scene of what Henry looked like from the outside, of what the experience of Henry was, uh, not just his own internal experience of the trapeze troupe, but what their experience of Henry was. So it gave me the other view on what was going on there. Things Not Seen is made possible in part through the generosity of our Patreon supporters. If you'd like to join them, please go to patreon.com slash notseenradio. That's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com slash notseenradio. Thank you. Welcome to Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt. Our guest today is Carolyn Whitney Brown. She's a Canadian writer, artist, and university teacher, and she was a personal friend of Henry Nouwen, and she knew him when her family lived in the Larsh Daybreak community from 1990 until Nouwen's death in 1996. She lives in Vancouver Island with her family, and she is a university teacher that is teaching religious studies. Today, we're talking about her recent book, Flying, Falling, Catching, an unlikely story of finding freedom that was written in concert with the remaining writings of Henry Nouwen from his journals and from a, an unrealized project that he had been working on at the time of his death. So Carolyn Whitney Brown, welcome to Things Not Seen. Thank you, David. So my longtime listeners will know that I oftentimes like to start my interviews by saying, hey, I'd like to begin in an odd place, and I would still like to do that. But in order to get to that odd place, I'd like, if you could, for you to give us a little bit of an overview for listeners who are unfamiliar with Henry Nouwen. Who was he and why was he significant in the late 20th century coming into the 21st century? Mm. Well, Henry Nouwen was born in the Netherlands in 1932. And he moved to the U.S. in the 1960s. He studied psychology at the Menninger Clinic. He was already an ordained Roman Catholic priest. And he went from there on to teach at Notre Dame and then at Yale and at Harvard with various breaks on sabbaticals and time. He lived in the Genesee Abbey for a while and wrote a, a journal of trying to learn a different rhythm of prayer. He lived in Latin America for a while. In 1985, 86, he went to France and lived in a Larche community. Now, Larche communities are communities with people with intellectual disabilities, where people with and without intellectual disabilities share life with each other, work, play, cry. It's named Larche, which is the Ark, named after Noah's, you know, floating community of mayhem and chaos. And 
he lived there for that year. And then in 1986, Henry was invited to L'Arche Daybreak near Toronto to be community pastor. And he lived there for 10 years. And his last year of his life, he was on a sabbatical. And he died suddenly of a heart attack in September 1996. And the other thing, just to give Henry some context, he wrote almost 40 books in his lifetime. I think they're all still in print. They've sold millions of copies. He really was one of the founders of pastoral theology. He wrote books called The Wounded Healer, called Reaching Out. His characteristic um, writing was about a movement from hostility to hospitality, from illusion to prayer, from loneliness to solitude. Those were the kind of inner movements that really interested him. He was also very interested in we, why we do those inner movements, not just for ourselves, but to be part of a community that matters in the world, a peacemaking community. He was very involved in peace activism at different points. He really cared about how we look after each other. So, so he had a very big social vision that he both spoke about, but also really enacted in his own life. Thank you for giving that overview, because I think that helps to orient my listeners to who this man was and what his impact was, particularly when you were saying that he wrote over 40 books, all of them on various aspects of pastoral theology, and that he was really one of the founders of pastoral theology. I think that helps especially to set up the odd place where I'd like to begin our conversation. Because about 10 years ago, I was in New York City, and at the urging of a friend of mine, I went and saw... I don't even know what to describe it. It was in a theater that was in a renovated old bank down off of one of the parks uh, near Greenwich Village. And it was not exactly a play, but it wasn't not a play. It was a very physical, theatrical event called Fuerza Bruta. And when I describe this to you and to my listeners, let me simply say that it began on the ground. And by the time everything was done, people were literally running on the ceiling and the walls. It was a theatrical, circus-like, incredibly gymnastic, incredibly physically demanding event. And I left that theater transformed and had been transfixed. From that moment forward, like my, my entire perception of the world was changed by the possibilities of watching those bodies tell stories not with words, but by moving through the air. And I thought of that when I began to read your book, Flying, Falling, Catching, because for me, that was a moment of touching what I would call the sublime, something that was greater than I could imagine, but I saw human beings doing it. And when Henry Nouwen walked into a circus tent in 1991, he seemed to have a similar experience. And I wonder if you could describe a little bit about what it was that he saw and what began to change in him there when he walked into that tent. Yeah, and, and of course, I've, I've got the misfortune of having a dead co-author, so he can't speak for himself. So I might actually read a few lines of what he wrote, if I may. Please, of course. Because I'm sure he'd rather describe it for you himself. Yeah, he went to see a traveling circus. He was in Germany. He was just finished writing a book about the prodigal son. He was starting work on a book that about how each of us will find a greater freedom if we really can claim that we're beloved by God. And his dad was visiting and he went with his 90-year-old father to the circus. 
and it had animals and all the things of a 1980s traveling circus. And then there were this, was this trapeze troupe called the Flying Rodleys. And he was absolutely, like you say, he was absolutely mesmerized. His response was not just in his head, but it was just a whole body response. He talked about it as feeling like an adolescent, a feeling that he was a teenager in love, of he wept tears, and he tried dictating a tape about a few days later to his secretary in Canada. What he said, and he was just babbling, he was so excited. And what he says is, what really got me, what really fascinated me was the trapeze artists. And that's why I became so involved in the circus. And when I saw them at the very beginning, it was absolutely fascinating. Four people from South Africa, one American. I was just so impressed that I kept thinking about them. They did incredible things in the air. And somehow, and that was important that I realized that was always why I went to the circus. I was always waiting for the trapeze artists. And these guys were really amazing. Actually, they weren't all guys. There were three men and two women. And they were moving freely in the air and making these incredible jumps and catching each other. And I was just fascinated by their physical prowess. But I was just as much fascinated by the group as a team, the way they worked together, because I realized there must be enormous intimacy among these people when everything is so dependent on cooperation and mutual trust and everything is so dependent on exact timing. And he just says it was kind of a wow, you know, and I must confess that when I saw them, they seemed to be in a way like God so far above me that I wouldn't even dare come close to them. I had this emotional response. These people are really so far above me in their talent or in their giftedness. They're great artists. And who am I? A little tiny guy wanting to get to know them. And he just talks about feeling like a kid, just, and this is someone who's been teaching at Yale and Harvard, and he's just overwhelmed with excitement and he keeps saying with adolescent emotion well and that was our guest carolyn whitney brown reading from her recent co-authored book flying falling catching an unlikely story of finding freedom and the words that she was reading were the initial words of henry nowen when he first saw the flying rodleys which were a european trapeze group that were traveling in a circus and he saw them at random in germany and what i love about what you just read to us is how tumbling out it feels like the words, even as you were reading them, but you can also get the cadence when you read the words on the page. He's literally like almost falling down a hill with emotion. He just is overcome by it. And there are things about this that began to reconnect him in several ways. So, and we can talk about these variously in turn, uh, but he began to reconnect with his childhood to circuses that he had seen in the past. And you have that passage where he says, and I always waited for the trapeze. But as we come to learn, as you continue the book, Flying, Falling, Catching, he's also reconnecting to his body. He's reconnecting to feelings of freedom. He's reconnecting to feelings of grace, even to understandings of sexuality. So it's a multi-layered reconnection that's happening here. But in that first moment when he's tumbling these words out to his secretary in Canada, it's almost like he knows that something's there, but it's much bigger than he can give shape to with his words. Now, as I describe it this way, am I on to something or would you say it in a different way? No, I think that's exactly right. He hardly knows what he's on to himself, except that he has this physical response. And later he talks about that his years of teaching at the university were about his mind. And moving to L'Arche and living with people with disabilities were about the heart. But there was something about the trapeze that was about the body. And he'd been set up for that by living the very physical life with people with disabilities in L'Arche. But it pushed him to a whole feeling and experience. And he really wanted to write about it. He wanted to share it. And he didn't know how to share it. He really, that's 
trying to figure out what to do with this experience really stumped him in a way. And we'll come back to this because he spent most of the last years of his life trying to figure out the way into telling this story. But on the way there, before we get to our first break, I want to make sure that listeners understand what his role was at the large community, because you mentioned that he went there in a role as a chaplain or a pastor, but also he was involved in the day-to-day lives of caring for the persons that were there. In particular, there was uh, a person named Adam that he became involved with, the intimate care with, helping to bathe Adam and those sorts of things. So, so he was not simply going there as an aloof pastoral star. He was going there as a servant. Now, it, it, that was my impression. Am I correct in that, or would you say it in a different way? Yeah, he expected to arrive as a pastor, and he describes himself how shocked he was when he was asked to go live in a house with people with disabilities, and it was a house with, I think, five or six people with disabilities, with intellectual disabilities and other assistants. And yeah, one of the people he was asked to help start their day was named Adam. Adam had very severe epilepsy, so he didn't speak. He needed a lot of physical care. Henry had never physically cared for anybody. He could hardly physically care for himself. He really had rarely made a sandwich. He didn't know how to do a laundry. He was baffled at how to make a cup of tea. Like people couldn't fathom how he got to be his age. He was in his fifties with, with such a lack of simple physical abilities. So looking after Adam was a huge thing for him and looking after someone who was physically very trusting and very vulnerable. That too was very new for Henry. He was brought up in a Catholic family, became a priest fairly you know, young. That was his whole desire from the time he was a child even, was to become a priest. Pre-Vatican II seminary didn't encourage people to really explore or discover their bodies or their sexuality or any kind of intimacy. I even remember particular friendships, you know, you don't do that. There's nothing that would set you up to be able to be really comfortable helping someone shave, helping someone bathe, helping someone eat, walking with someone, helping them in that way. So for Henry, this was absolutely a new world. Well, we will be picking up on all of this when we return. If you're interested in more conversations about Henry Nowen, this is one of several that we have at our website, thingsnotseenradio.com. Today, we're speaking with Carolyn Whitney Brown. She has co-authored a book with the late Henry Nowen called Flying, Falling, Catching, an unlikely story of finding freedom. We'll be back in just... Things Not Seen is brought to you in part by Liturgical Press. Liturgical Press is a trusted publisher of resources on liturgy, scripture, theology, and spirituality. They've evolved to serve the changing needs of the Christian church, and they produce resources for pastoral leaders, teachers, engaged learners, and all leaders looking for quality books on faith and culture. Lit Press books are available at your favorite book retailer and online at litpress.org. That's litpress.org. Welcome back to Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt. If you're enjoying these conversations, please go to our website, thingsnotseenradio.com. There you'll find close to 10 years of these sorts of interviews and conversations, all available for free for your listening pleasure. We're speaking today with Carolyn Whitney Brown. She's the co-author, along with the late Henry Nowen, of the book Flying, Falling, Catching, An Unlikely Story of Finding Freedom. It tells the tale of Henry Nowen discovering late in his life, a few years before his death, 
a new passion for acrobats in the circus. And that's what we're going to be getting into in this segment, because what I really want to start off asking about is this group that he happens upon that one day when he travels in Germany with his father to go and see the circus almost at random. He is delighted by the Flying Rodleys, which is a a troop of five acrobats who do the flying trapeze. Tell us a little bit about the Flying Rodleys. Yeah, Rodley Stevens is still alive. He lives in Australia now. He was South African. And he and his sister, who was also part of the Flying Rodley's Trapeze Troupe, are actually fifth-generation circus performers. But they curiously didn't grow up in a circus family because at some point, I don't quite know their history, but they were raised Seventh-day Adventist with a sense that Being part of a circus community would be decadent and inappropriate. So they had to really push against their own religious upbringing to decide to pursue their passion for circus. They were at the time, the Flying Rodleys were one of the best trapeze troops in Europe. They were really well known. There were five of them, as I think I read Henry saying earlier, two women and three men. And... Yeah, one American, four were from South Africa. Rodley went on to train performers at Cirque du Soleil in Montreal and just now in Australia. And one of the things that fascinated me about this is along the way, you write that one of the female performers actually was called into service when another performer retired, and she didn't begin the trapeze until after she was 40 years old. Did I read that correctly? After she was 30. That's Rodley's sister. And and when you read more about her life, she did. They had been acrobatic as kids. They did have more of a family background. But no, she had been teaching phys ed, I think, in Hawaii or something. And her brother said, come join the trapeze troupe. And she said, do you think I can do it? And he said, yeah. So she did. Yeah. Which is amazing. And so I want my listeners to get sort of two takeaways from this. First of all, when Henry Nowen saw this, one of the takeaway messages that he got was it's never too late to start on an adventure or a change. And and I think that he got that inspiration in part from Rodley's sister. But the other thing, and you mentioned it just a moment ago, Rodley and his family had been raised Seventh-day Adventist. There was an incredible pressure not to enter the circus, not to be involved in this kind of public display of acrobatics. And what struck me about that in your book, Flying, Falling, Catching, is how deeply Rodley and others in the troupe felt this not just as something to do, but as a calling that was inexorable and that drew them and that was almost, and I'm going to use religious language here, was almost vocational in the same way that some of my friends who are vowed religious would talk about. I I tried other ways of being in the world, but eventually I had to become a nun or I had to become a friar. It felt to me like that. Now, when I make that comparison, that's not one that you make explicitly in the book, but when I make that, does that feel right or would you say it in a different way? No, I think Rodley had a just a strong sense of call to this world, to this life, to this artistry. He talks to Henry about the pride of an artist, of, of changing up the routine, of making it harder, of, of making it more complicated of feeling a strong sense of responsibility to his audience. And Henry really picks up exactly what you're saying, actually, the similarities between a circus, a traveling circus, and the church, the Catholic church, of trying to 
pull people out of themselves for a moment, of giving them a moment of transcendence, of thinking that's what I could be in the world. This is something bigger than me. That he actually, Henry starts to see all sorts of similarities between these two worlds and almost wonders why other people don't see it, why it's not obvious. Well, and we're a little out of order here, but I'm going to ask this question anyway, and then I'm going to circle back. So there is this way in which, and you just mentioned it, that Rodley is constantly wanting to, these, these will be my words, up his game, to make the act a little bit more elaborate, to make it a little bit riskier, but to balance that risk with kind of a responsible sense of safety. But he, and you said it exactly, that there's a point where Henry asks him about this and he goes, well, partly it's because we want to make sure that we get asked back next season. We always want to be making sure that we're wowing the audience, but also just as you said, this sense of, but we're also in it because we want to see how great we can make this, how good we can do these things. So there was this sense of they were constantly trying to figure out their own limitations and how to push them even through injuries and even through other sorts of moments where something doesn't quite go right. They still find ways to bring the art and the beauty out of it, don't they? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. In a way, I only saw this after I wrote the book. It- resonates with Henry's wounded healer kind of sense of finding your places of vulnerability and, and using those. Not The audience doesn't need to know about them. The audience doesn't know that Rodley is performing through pain. It's not about his pain. It's about choosing something out of his whole self and, and being fully present with all of who he is. And yeah, they perform through all sorts of injuries. It's actually really fascinating. Well, and now I want to circle back because we're still at that first afternoon where he's sitting on the bleachers, Henry Nowen is, and he sees this act. And then suddenly he feels like he has to get to know these people. What does he do next? How does he begin to develop a relationship with the Flying Rodleys? Well, he goes back to another performance. He's he's actually staying with some Franciscans, and they suddenly say, oh, we're going to circus want to go and he gets really excited that he's going to go again in fact he's so excited that he's all churned up with emotion and he goes and he thinks i'd like to meet them i really want to meet them he doesn't know how to and then he sees the owner of the circus so he goes up to him and he says how would i meet those wonderful performers and the owner of the circus says well there's one of them over there why don't you go meet her and he goes leaping over to her and she's sort of uneasy because she's not actually supposed to be out in front uh, before a show, and he just pours out his adulation, and she finds him pretty amusing. So she invites him to come backstage and meet the troupe. And the reason I know some of these details is because her brother, Rodley Stevens, wrote a memoir. And I, I really should give Rodley a lot of credit. I couldn't have written this book without his support and his memoir called What a Friend We Had in Henry. And what, what Rodley's memoir gave me was that kind of scene of what Henry looked like from the outside, of what the experience of Henry was, uh, not just his own internal experience of the trapeze troupe, but what their experience of Henry was. So it gave me the other view on what was going on there. So she took him backstage, or invited him backstage to meet them, and they got to like this quirky guy, and they got to know each other. If you're just joining us, this is Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt. We're speaking today with Carolyn Whitney Brown. She's the co-author, along with the late Henry Nowen, of the book Flying, Falling, Catching, An Unlikely Story of Finding Freedom, which is about Henry Nowen's late-in-life adulation, love, 
surprise by a troupe of acrobatic trapeze performers called the Flying Rodleys. Well, so now he's met them, and he he then vows that as long as he is staying there at the friary with the Franciscans, he's going to go back to the circus every day and see them as many times as he possibly can. So is it fair to say that Henry was a person who would at times be caught up in his passions, sometimes to a rather extreme degree? Because that seems, even for someone who really likes something, that seems like very over-the-top behavior. Was this typical for him, or was this really and truly something that was singular, that he was so enraptured that he came out of his shell for this moment? Oh, that's a good question. He certainly walked through all of his own hesitancy to go meet them. And he went to two performances a day of theirs. They were performing twice a day and he went to every single one. But Henry, all his life had been someone who, and that was one of the things I discovered writing this book, is he had always been someone who would follow an inner sense of call. It's part of what made him extraordinary, that if he had a sense of uneasiness, that he had to do something that he really felt called, he would, with tremendous courage, go. So one of the things I put in the book was when he responded to the call of Martin Luther King Jr. in 65 to go to Selma, when King asked church leaders from around the country to come, and Henry wasn't going to go. He was Dutch. It was 800 miles away from Kansas, and he just realized he had to go. He just had to go. And so all his life, he was someone who responded to kind of an inner call with incredible integrity in a way. I find that fascinating about him. Well, and so over the course of basically a week, he goes twice a day to these performances, and he is eventually invited to come and go backstage to watch their rehearsals. He begins to strike up relationships with the various members, starting with Rodley, but also going to the other members as well. And one of the things that he is doing from the very beginning is he is asking them detailed questions about technique, how they think about what they're doing, how they go about practicing what they're doing, what it is to, to have the various roles on the team, because there are and I, if I get this wrong, please correct me, but there are throwers and catchers in, in this, like people who fly through the air. Flyers. Yeah, yeah. people who fly through the air and, and those that swing on the trapeze to catch them. And that there's a, a delicate balance and a real kind of division of labor amongst these various folks. But he's basically absorbing all of this like a sponge. And at first, it seems almost he's trying to write some kind of scholarly uh, treatise on the techniques of trapeze, but he's not trying to do that. It seems instead like he's trying to get at something deeper and maybe help us understand he doesn't even know what he's searching for yet, but kind of what is he reaching for in those initial conversations? I think what he's trying to do is understand his own experience, his physical experience, his emotional experience, and why that was such a spiritual experience for him. Why he feels, as he says, like the angels of God have come with a revelation for him. He says it with that kind of self-deprecating humor that he has about himself. He says, why shouldn't the angels of God appear to me as five trapeze artists? And I think he's also looking for an image that'll speak to Christians, but also to other people about what we do together, not about individual spirituality, but about what we do together, how our 
life and community works, how our forgiveness works, how, I mean, in a sense, God calls us to some, to a great work in the world, but not alone. God calls us to do it together. And there's certain kinds of discipline we need to do that and certain kinds of forgiveness and kindness and fun. Henry was just so struck by how much fun they had doing that and, and the playfulness as well as their enormous discipline and artistry and just the sheer beauty of people trying to live something so intense and in a way mission-oriented. They're trying to do it for others. They're trying to do it both for its own sake, for its own beauty, but also for the world. And I think on all these levels, Henry is groping to explain something, but he realizes he doesn't want to explain it as a piece of theology. He wants readers to have an experience. He wants to find a way to tell this story in a way that will give readers an experience, not a bunch of thoughts. I I really like how you said that last piece, because when I spoke earlier about my experience in New York watching Fuerza Bruta, one of the things that I realized was how impossible it was for me to describe what I had experienced in that theater, watching people literally running on the walls. Like I, I, I tried to write about it years ago. And one of the things that I ended up saying in the piece was, you'll just have to trust me. You have to get on a plane and go to New York and see this for yourself. And in some ways, it almost feels like Henry became an evangelist for something transcendent that he was seeing in the Flying Rodleys. And when he would sit down with others, some of his friends were bemused by this enthusiasm. Others just didn't get it. They, I'm thinking particularly of a conversation with an editor who was like, you want to write a book on what? You want to talk about what? And so that must have been tremendously frustrating. I'm imagining it was tremendously frustrating for Henry Nouwen to have this ebullience about something and to not have other people be able to catch the spark from his description. Well, he certainly did talk about it a lot. And you did catch his energy. He was so, so excited about it. It was really irresistible, his enthusiasm. Now, I'm one of the ones who listened to him, but the trapeze imagery didn't really grab me. As I say, I I don't really like heights, you know? It just wasn't my image. But so when I started this project, I was asked by his literary estate to, to look at this stuff that had been sitting in the archives. And they said, can you think of something to do, something creative to do with it? And here's something we haven't said yet that's really important. Henry, as he was trying to think of what kind of a project to do, he decided he needed to write a story, that he needed to tell it in a creative way. And being, as you pointed out, he didn't do anything by halves. He went out and bought two books about writing creative nonfiction. He tried to read about how to write a story. He tried to discipline himself to do some exercises and write dialogue differently. He really wanted to tell a story. and he. That was hugely important. He thought maybe he could tell it as a novel. And I think that was because he wanted readers, again, to have an experience and to draw their own conclusions. At at all sorts of points, he could have explained what he saw and what it was about, but instead he wanted readers to get on the inside of a story of an experience of characters, and then it would speak to them. So... That, as we're moving towards our next break, that opens up a piece that has been ringing in the back of my mind. And that is when he has this experience and he begins to try and put it into words, it becomes clear that he's having an understanding of this on a spiritual level. And as we've mentioned, he lived his life as a priest, he was celibate, but he was also beginning to understand himself differently on a bodily level. And he was reacting to these moving bodies in the air 
not only in a spiritual or theological way, but also in some ways in a sexual way. And he was beginning to find the language to talk about that as well, it seems. And so I'm wondering, as he's moving towards trying to write this story, is he finding the theological language to be a hindrance, or is he just saying that it's not the best vehicle with which to tell the story? Was he wanting to throw it over the side of the boat, or was it something that was still in the cargo, but it wasn't the one kind of steering the craft, if you follow what I'm saying? Yeah, truthfully, I don't know. What he says is that immediately he starts talking about it as taking him back to adolescence. We all know what adolescence means. And then later, he often writes these sort of hints that he needs to write about it in a way that will be accessible to everyone. So he needs to desexualize his experience. But he doesn't ever say, he never is explicit about in what way it was sexually says they were in his fantasies, what his fantasies were. He, he, Henry's not self-revealing in that way. He, he never was. But he also was psychologically savvy about himself and other people. So he certainly wasn't going to deny or refuse to face that this was part of the attraction, the power, the energy of it for him. And he's amused at himself that he feels like he's picking up pieces of his life as a young man that he never had. He's a 16-year-old with a, with a wild infatuation, and he never had that experience before. And he's fascinated, embarrassed, interested in his own experience. And he's also trying to find a way to invite others into that experience in a way that will be not about his experience, but let them have their own experience uh, of this transcendent physical beauty that he sees flying before him. And, and not just the teamwork of it, the interaction of it, the letting go and flying of, he sees a letting go of everything and being connected with everything all at the same time. So the flying Rodleys help Henry Nowen to begin to rethink his own approach to both his embodied experience, but also theology. I think that's fair to say, coming away from your book, Flying, Falling, Catching. But I was also struck towards the, I guess, the back third of your book, that there was a point where Henry was also able to help Rodley think differently about the trapeze. And I wonder, before we go to break, if you could just describe that. It, I, I believe it, it happened when, when Henry Nowen created a video around the Flying Rodleys and gave some commentary on the video. And as Rodley was listening to this, he describes having kind of a shift in his mind about what his vocation is. Yeah, Henry really saw the Flying Rodleys work in the world as being peacemakers of bringing people together who would never come together otherwise. People from different countries, people who speak different languages, people of all ages. That's what a traveling circus can do. It can bring people together. And even within the circus community, of the different acts, the different performers, the different crew come from all over the world and work together as a team. And I think that helped Rodley see the larger well, symbolic significance, but just reality of what they were living together and how impressive and powerful that is for people who aren't immersed in it, who don't take it for granted day by day. So Henry likes to say that this circus and, and Lars, she saw something similar. People who really are committed to trying to find a way of living in the world as peacemakers, as building bridges, of 
great acceptance of messiness and failure. And I think Rodley got really moved to just to think about what they were doing in that much larger way. If you're just joining us, this is Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt. We're speaking today with Carolyn Whitney Brown. She is the co-author, along with the late Henry Nowen, of the recent book, Flying, Falling, Catching, an unlikely story of finding freedom. We'll return to our conversation in just a moment. Welcome back to Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt. Each week on our program, we bring you a rich conversation about culture and faith. If you're enjoying these conversations, please go to our website, thingsnotseenradio.com. There you'll find close to 10 years of these sorts of conversations and interviews, all available for free for your listening pleasure. We're speaking today with Carolyn Whitney Brown. She's the co-author, along with the late Henry Nowen, of the book Flying, Falling, Catching, An Unlikely Story of Finding Freedom. It details how Henry Nowen, a renowned author of more than 40 books on pastoral and spiritual subjects, discovered a troop of trapeze acrobats at a circus, fell in love with what they were doing, and decided to try and explore, study, and write about it as much as he could in the last years of his life. Well, Carolyn Whitney Brown, I want to turn now to the structure of the book because I was intrigued at how you chose to put this story together. It actually operates on what I took to be three levels. So there's the level of telling the story of Henry Nowen discovering the Flying Rodleys, becoming acquainted with them, deepening friendships with them, and attempting to write this book. There's a second layer of his movement to the Larsh Daybreak community and how that affected him and how those relationships affected him. But the third layer, and really that which wraps the other two, is we're looking at the last moments, in some ways, of Henry Nowen's life, because you are taking us through a series of vignettes where he is in the upper floor of, a, of an old hotel in Europe, and he is uh, suddenly struck by chest pains, And then as the paramedics are trying to get him out of the room, it becomes more and more involved to try and get him to the hospital. So I would be interested to to hear about how you came up with that structure and what it was like thinking about how these different pieces would interact. Talk to us about that. Yeah. Well, I was talking to you earlier about Rodley's memoir. And the, the way Rodley starts his memoir is the way this book starts, which is Rodley at Henry's funeral feeling like the eulogies talking about Henry is anguished and wounded doesn't quite catch his experience of Henry as someone enthusiastic, joyful, relaxed, flamboyant, funny, full of delight, eager for a new experience that, that it just doesn't match. And he almost wants to rush up to the front of the church and correct the eulogy and, and say, no, you're missing, you're missing a key thing. So the book starts there. And then I jump, as you say, to the true story of Henry's first heart attack. And he had flown from Toronto to Holland. He went to a hotel straight from the airport. He wasn't feeling good. He called down to the front desk, called the paramedics. The paramedics came up and realized that in the middle of a heart attack, they couldn't take him down the steep stairs. They couldn't take him on the elevator and that, the, that they would have to take him out a window. Now, a window rescue wasn't an unknown thing. It wasn't unheard of. But it wasn't common either. And I was, well, I have to be honest, I, I had looked at his material in the archives, having been invited to look at it, and I was feeling a bit stuck. I, and, I, and I went to my friend, Ruth Rakoff, a Toronto writer and friend, 
And I said, I, I don't know what to do with this stuff. It's, his life is weirder than fiction. It's better than fiction. He, gets, he never gets to be a flyer in a circus, but he gets taken out a window. And she said, that's what your framing thing is. Can he, during this emergency, can you find any justification for him to be looking back over his life, trying to figure out why didn't I write this book? And, and in that moment, it all clicked into place. And the other thing she said was, his body is a character in this book. So his body is failing, his heart is failing, his body is being taken out a window, and his relationship with his own body is absolutely key to the story. So uh, my thanks to my friend Ruth, then everything clicked into place for me, that, that I had a framing narrative and a way to get into Henry's story with this sort of whodunit of why didn't he write this? Yeah, so that's how the structure happened. There's so much there that I want to dig into. So there are points in your book, Flying, Falling, Catching, where as Henry Nowen's relationship with this group of trapeze artists, the Flying Rodleys, deepens and deepens, there are points where the, the various members of the Flying Rodleys actually invite Henry to explore what it's like to swing in the air on the trapeze and to fall through the air to the net and be caught. And they have conversations about what it means to be a flyer and to be caught by a catcher and what the various roles there and how trust plays into that. And so even though, and I grant that this rap that you've given to the book of him being defenestrated, being taken out of the window there in Holland is a conceit, right? It's a way of imagining what he might've been thinking about. What I really liked about it was it was clear that if he had not had that experience with the Flying Rodleys, this is my reading, that if he had not had that experience, being taken out that window might have been much more terrifying for him, that he would not have had the metaphors and the cognates of, I am basically a flyer at this point and I'm waiting for the catcher to catch me, or I know what it's like to be high in the air because I've been up with people that I trust before and I can trust these people. I was just amazed at how well that grounded and connected these other aspects of his experience. And I imagine that if he had been my imagination as a reader was that if he had gone through this without having that experience with the Flying Rodleys, he would have been much more fearful and that his embodiment of that moment would have been much different. Now, that's my experience as a reader. When I say that to you as the author of the book, how does that land with you? Mm, that's so interesting because it might well be. I, I don't know. I mean, Henry impressed the Rodleys that he would climb right up to that platform to fly to, to grab a trapeze and swing, he hardly flew. He, as he said, he limply hung from the trapeze. And when he saw a video of it later, he thought he was amused by how pathetic he looked. So, so there was nothing very dramatic. But yeah, they did get him up on a platform and they were impressed that he wasn't scared up there. They were just eager to grab the trapeze and give it a try. So he was someone who wanted a new adventure I could imagine that even in a heart attack, especially once they gave him some good drugs, that he would be quite curious about the experience and, and quite interested in the people helping him and who they were. And I did do, I, I found someone in Holland named Denny Wolterkins who helped me with very detailed description of what the paramedics would have come and done, what the questions they would have asked. So Henry's actual experience is recreated. I don't know how accurate it is, but physically it would be pretty accurate. But yeah, I make up what's going on in his head, sure. Well, and this is where I really want to go now with this next 
sort of set of questions is there's a point where he is, where Henry Nouwen is having detailed conversations with the Flying Rodleys about their techniques and what they do. And it's almost a revelatory moment where Rodley and also one of the people who's the catcher, they both say in various ways that when the flyer, the person who's flying through the air from the trapeze, is coming out of the somersaults and is waiting to be caught, the very worst thing that they can do at that moment is to try and actually have volition to try and say, okay, and now I'm going to adjust to be caught. Instead, it is their job simply to trust that the catcher will catch them and that if they both try and catch each other, incredible damage, injury, even death could result. But instead, the flyer simply has to trust that the catcher will catch them. And there was a cascade of theological revelations that came for Henry in this moment. I wonder if you could help my listeners understand how that fired off for him some of these connections. Yeah, it it was so powerful for him to think of the flyer going through these motions, going through a long series of somersaults or a long jump, as he called it, right across the whole circus tent, and then just reaching out their arms. And as you say, if they're trying to adjust for the catcher and the catcher's trying to adjust for them, it won't work. They just stretch out their hands and wait. And the catcher is watching every micro movement. They're figuring out, are they a little bit earlier than usual? Are they a little later, a little higher, a little lower? And are watching absolutely everything And then they reach out and they grab them, not hand to hand, but arm to arm, right? So they grab them above the wrist and then the flyer can grab the catcher back again. So they grab each other's arms. And the the flyer is often on an upward trajectory and 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 the catcher swings up from underneath them to catch them. But the other thing that really fascinated me, too, is that, of course, that's not the end. The the catcher doesn't catch the flyer and they stop in midair, right? The catcher catches them and they're now they're in motion together and the the catcher either sends them on into a new kind of momentum or sends them back to the platform to end the trick sometimes sends them on to another catcher at a different level Uh, and that really interests me too that the catcher's job isn't to catch them and end it's to send them on and for henry he the first thing that struck him was the kind of as he says, into your hands, I commend my spirit feeling that's how we die, is in the end, we stretch out our hands and wait to be caught and trust that we're going to be caught. And, and I think throughout that remained this central image for Henry of what moved him theologically and emotionally, really profoundly. But then, especially as he spoke with at the National Catholic Network with people with HIV and AIDS, I think especially there, it really struck him that the catchers, you're trying to catch people, you are being caught, is the relationship of neighbors, is the relationship of friends, that we are catchers and flyers for each other and we send each other on. And it really struck me too that at Larsh at daybreak when we lived there, that we would enact that in our community life, in terms of how we blessed each other, Henry was big on blessing each other and sending each other out. And I, in, in retrospect, looking back, I think we were learning how to catch each other in that moment and then send each other forth into something new. And having done that, we did that with Henry a lot because he traveled a lot. We blessed him and sent him quite a lot. Well, it strikes me also that what we have here is a very ready metaphor for understanding grace. 
and the way in which grace is operative from God to us, but also, as you've rightly said, person to person. Now, that's not made explicit in your book, Flying, Calling, Catching, but when I name that, does that land right with you, or would you say, no, there's actually a better theological way to think about what we're talking about here? I don't know. I mean, one of the things about what Henry wanted to do was he really tried to stay away from theological language. So even though he talked about his experience, that he was really trying to understand the incarnation differently of being in the body, but he didn't write that down. He really wanted to, he had this idea he was going to write a book that would make the great bring to some enormous secular audience, right? It was his desire. His friends rolled their eyes, thought that was a sweet thought, and who knew? But he, his fundamental sense was to tell a story that anyone could read, whether they had any kind of theological background, any kind of church background or not, that the story would make sense, that it would be a story of good people doing good things, he said, of these trapeze artists trying to make a difference in the world in their own artistic way, and that somewhere that his experience of that would carry a story that would compel people. And again, I just can't say strongly enough that in a way, unlike his other books, he's trying to tell a story, but also he's really trying to say something about our collective power, about how we do things together, not alone. Even if you think about the image of a pedestal, Henry it could have been seen as someone on a pedestal, right? But in a circus, the pedestal is, you don't stay there. You'd look stupid standing around there for long. You're never alone, and you get off as fast as you can. The whole thing is about what we do together, of doing this great act together, of trying to figure out how we do it better, how to support each other, how to trust each other to do their best each time. It's really a, a really profound meditation on how we, you know, our, our collective life, our community life. I, I want to be mindful of what you just said, that Henry Nouwen stayed away from overly theologizing these things and putting it into theological language. Nevertheless, I was struck by a moment in your book, Flying, Falling, Catching, where one of his friends reflects back to him that as a priest— when he stands at the Eucharist, in some ways he was the catcher, and Jesus, the Holy Spirit, was the flyer coming to him and trusting him to catch and then to send on. And I wonder if we could just linger on that moment as well for my listeners, that, that even though Henry didn't want to, Henry Nowen didn't want to put this into overly theological language, it was still true that he was profoundly affected at a deep level spiritually by his engagement with the Flying Rodleys, and it even changed the way that he thought about presiding at the Eucharist. Now, is that too strong a way of saying it, or would you say it in a different way? Well, that is actually the only piece of the book that is, in a sense, utterly fiction. And, and I do say that clearly to note. I do, the insight that Henry was a catcher of God in the Eucharistic moment, I actually owe that insight to my husband, Jeff. I don't know that anyone ever said that to Henry. It stuns me that nobody, that, that he never thought that himself in all those years. He was coming up to 40 years of the priesthood. In a way, it's so obvious that the God who's in motion comes. And it was such a fantastic insight that I wanted to put it in the book somewhere. And I, and I needed someone to say it to Henry who had seen Henry celebrating the Eucharist a lot. And so then I had to think, who could say it to Henry? And I actually put the words then into the mouth of Joan Crock, the McDonald's widow, who had 
Henry often to her house in his last year of his life. And he always celebrated Eucharist when he visited her. So she was got to see up close the intensity with which Henry celebrated Eucharist. He really looked at the body of Christ when we we often were at Mass with Henry and just the sheer focused intensity and love with which he celebrated Eucharist is rings in my memory now, even decades later. And so that image that he was a catcher of God totally made sense, and I needed someone to say it. So I, I do, the book has extensive notes, and I, I put right out there that this is an invented scene. And yeah, I don't know that anyone ever said it to Henry or that he ever thought it, but he should have. I'm so grateful for you saying that because this raises something that I, I wanted to ask you about. You knew Henry Nowen as a flesh-and-blood person who walked in space and time with you. You had conversations with him. You interacted with him. At the same time, you are presenting for us, the readers, a character of Henry Nowen as well. And I wonder what it's like to try and walk that line, because you've just said this particular moment, which struck me, was an invented moment. And yet, sometimes there's that sense of even the stories can be true if they're told with, with a love and with, with kind of the right kind of care. So I, I wonder what it's like as an author to try and balance the flesh and blood requirements that the actualities of Henry Nowen place on the story versus those moments that are necessary for the story to really land for the reader. Yeah, yeah. And I really did stay very close to Henry's life. That is the only, it, it was funny that you mentioned that scene because that is the only really invented, completely invented scene. Otherwise, the only invention is that Henry is thinking back over his life of marching in Selma, of going to Martin Luther King Jr.'s funeral, of trying to piece together how these elements of his life brought him to the moment of excitement around the Flying Rodleys, and then why over five years he wasn't able to write the book. So I invent that he's thinking back over that, but every single piece that he thinks about are things that happened. And I had to hold really close to his life because that I'm, I'm honoring his life. I, what I couldn't do was write the book he would have written. I don't know where it would have gone. I, I don't think he knew, but I think he would have written it someday. I, th I think he was moving towards something, but the pieces weren't integrated and they went deep, as you said. So in a way, I, it's, I'm, I'm a literary scholar, right? I did my PhD in English Lit. So I, it, it's a character. It's a character who develops. You've got character development in this book. And I invent a character that is as close as I could come to someone who I really knew and loved, but it is a character in a book. I can't pretend this is really Henry, but I hope people who knew Henry will recognize him. His brother said he felt that the book brought Henry close to him again, and that, that meant a lot to me, that it confirmed that, yeah, I'm not inventing a random version of Henry. This is very, and, and as I said, there are notes in the back so that readers can feel, where did she get this idea from? Did he really chew his nails? Yeah, he did. Yeah. Well, Carolyn Whitney Brown, your book, Flying, Falling, Catching, really brought Henry Nowen close to me as a reader. And I am aware that there are a lot of intersections here at which we could think about this book. But I also recognize that he was a person that you knew. He was your friend. And so I want to say, first of all, I'm sorry for your loss of this friendship. I'm grateful for the way in which you took 
your life experience and the archival experience and the experience of the Flying Rodleys, and you wove them together into such a masterful, artful reconstruction of these thoughts and passions and wonderments that Henry Nouwen was enraptured with in the last uh, days and years of his life. Thank you so much for the time it took to write the book, but also thank you so much for taking time to talk with us about it today. Mm, well, thank you. I realize as we talk, kind of add one other thing, that in a way, it's a bit of an imaginative contemplation of Henry for those who've done Ignatian contemplation, that, that in a way, the whole book was, for me, a huge privilege to write and a kind of prayer exercise, because I prayed a lot that I would create something that Henry would have been happy to see in the world, that it would touch readers, that it would help them in the way that Henry had hoped. So yeah, it, it was a privilege and it was a fun, fun book to write. And it's been a real pleasure to feel close to Henry again after all these years. Yeah, thanks, David. We've been speaking today with Carolyn Whitney Brown. She's a Canadian writer, artist, and university teacher. She's the co-author, along with Henry Nowen, of Flying, Falling, Catching, an unlikely story of finding freedom. She knew Henry Nowen well when she and her family lived in the Larsh Daybreak community from 1990 until Nowen's death in 1996, and she lives on Vancouver Island. Things Not Seen is produced by Sandberg Media, LLC. We're distributed nationally by PRX, the public radio exchange. Today's show was recorded at the William Adams Studios in beautiful Hyde Park here on the south side of Chicago, Illinois. Our studios have a home courtesy of the Zygon Center for Religion and Science, part of the Lutheran School of Theology at Chicago. Neither Zygon nor LSTC are responsible for the content of this program. Our theme music is composed by Gene Kijip. Our show is made possible in part by the generosity of supporters on Patreon. You can find out how to help us create great programs by going to patreon.com slash notseenradio. You can follow us on Twitter at notseenradio. Visit us on Facebook and like our page to receive regular updates about the show and find out more about our guests. That's facebook.com slash thingsnotseenradio. And you can sign up for the free podcast, listen to old shows, send us an email, and find out more about our guests if you visit us on the web at thingsnotseenradio.com. I'm David Dalt, and we'll be back next week with more conversations about culture and faith. Please join us.